Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio from River Road Studios in Eugene, Oregon. Today's show is brought to you by the Herbal Nerd Society. The Herbal Nerd Society is a collection of really awesome, cool people. Really? You always <laughs> they really say are. that. I, think, I always I think say you say that. Awesome and cool. It's so funny you, you say that every time. Because they are. They're really cool people. Yes, I we love appreciate the Herbal Nerd Society. I, I appreciate them because they keep us on our toes and they make me a better um, web person. I get that all the time. So mm-hmm. They make me smile. You know, they And they help us. They, they support this, which in turn supports us to do this. So yeah. Yeah. it's a nice, uh, it's, nice it's, give and take. It's a, our little exclusive club that... That we have that is four ninety nine a month, mm-hmm. uh, and you get exclusive articles. People have said several times, "Well, I tried to read your article, but it it said I had to be a member." Like that one did, yeah. yeah. So you might want to become a member, sweetheart, because you, clearly you know what you're missing here, don't you? Yeah. So, but that helps us pay our bills, and it's a really cheap way to to get an herbal education. I can tell you that you ain't gonna get that somewhere else. Too right. Yeah. Too right. All right. And Hunter Creation, graphic design and website designers, putting your marketing ideas to life, whether that's business cards or brochures or a rocking new website, they can help you out. Contact them at huntercreation.com. Get healthy now with Candice. Get healthy now with Candice is my clinical herbal practice. I work with folks near and far. I can do distance consults using... um, Zoom. Zoom, Zoom meetings. Zoom. 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 Zoom, Zoom meetings. And um, yeah, if you're looking for help and inspiration and would like to get healthy, give me a call. Right on. All right. Occupy Medical. Occupy Medical is an integrated health free clinic right here in Lane County, Oregon. Uh, we are a 501c3. And we are located at 1717 Centennial Suites 4 and 7. And you can donate to us any any time because we are uh, our, we'll give you a tax receipt. And check us out at occupy-medical.org. Ace High Heat Graphics. Custom and printed uh, T-shirts or hats, any kind of apparel. You want to put your logo or message on something for your group or organization, they can help you out. Contact them at acehighheatgraphics.com. And Sierra Lupe Herbal, herbal Consulting. Consulting is my own little herbal thing. And uh, I also do um, uh, distance and in-tone consulting. And my specialty is on chronic illnesses. And I work with uh, medication. And uh, uh, it's just kind of fun to do. So that's what I do. There you have it. So how do you get a hold of me? You go Sierra Lupe, herbalconsulting at gmail.com. All right. Don't forget that we're on the social networks. We're on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Yes, we at the we hashtag, are. the Back to Herbalist. Plus, we already have an Instagram page as well. Yep. Uh, I believe we are on the Twitter. We are. We on are. On the Twitter. We are the Twitterist. Yes. Uh, yes, we are on we Twitter are. as well. So if you want to reach out to us, we are there and we will join in in conversations. I know, Sue, you're really active on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like the podcast and have been a long-time listener or first-time listener and really like it, nothing helps us out better than a review. Yes, please send us a review. We would love to hear more. All right. With all that, it's time for the show. Hey, Nicole. Thank you for stopping by and giving us the quick scoop on what's going on with the fire cider stuff. Thanks so much for having me. This is Nicole Telkish here. I'm one of the fire cider three that's 
with Traditions Net Trademark, where we're working to preserve our herbal traditions. And in this case, it's in the form of returning the trademark fire cider to the generic, that generic name to our herbal community where it started. So now finally, four years later, I guess we're almost entering our fifth year of working on this though. We have finally gotten a court date. We have been waiting five years. Everyone all the time keeps asking us, what's the news? And we haven't been able to give any news because there's been all sorts (laughs) of things that have not happened. So <laughs> we are now looking at a date of March 25th, 2019. And that's very exciting. We can't wait to finish this and win. And we really need support now because now is when all the legal costs are going to add up. So <laughs> if, people, if you'd like to support us and make donations to Free Fire Cider and the Traditions Not Trademark campaign, you can go to our website, freefirecider.com slash donate. And we are taking, actively taking donations, and especially in celebration of World Fire Cider Day of Action, February 2nd. We are going to be raising as much funds as we can to finish out this lawsuit on March 25th. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving us the scoop on that. And I look forward to watching the donations climb. Again, folks, that is freefirecider.com slash donations. We've been watching the power of plant medicine take hold of our mainstream culture. Herbalism is sprouting far and wide, and with it a whole crop of herbal remedies, herbalists, and almost an overwhelming array of herbal schools. How do you turn your herbal dreams into an action plan? Today we're talking with Nicole Talkish, practicing clinical herbalist and director of the Wildflower School of Botanical Medicine, about setting up shop as an herbalist. Now here are your hosts, Candace Hunter and Sucierre Lupe. I'm Candace Hunter. And I'm Sucierre Lupe. And, and welcome, welcome to Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. And welcome, Nicole. I'm so happy you're finally back. Yes, we've missed you so much. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So last time we talked to you, you were in the great state of Texas. Where are you right now? I am in Arizona. Arizona. Wow. Okay. That sounds nice and warm. Mm -hmm. I like that. But you're, you're living in Oregon, aren't you? I live between different bioregions now. So I'm kind of living a really dreamy, in a way, a dreamy herbal life where I get to have all sorts of experiences in different parts of the country with plants at different times of year. Wow. That sounds really wonderful. Mm-hmm. How are you pulling that off? What's that look like? Uh, a lot of juggling. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I have a big planner in front of me with lots of uh, time changes noted and, um, you know, everything is planned out and plotted very carefully. I can imagine that would be an awful big puzzle to be putting together every day. <laughs> yeah. Is this most of this for your uh, your Wildflower School of Botanical Me- Medicine job, or is it other things you're putting together? Oh, gosh. Um, there are quite a – I mean, Wildflower School is, is very active and remains that way in Texas, and I'm doing um, – still doing the intermediate and advanced programs, but I'm kind of moving to more online courses to make some things more accessible to people and 
different places. And then I'm also working on uh, working with some different places around the Northwest to either teach or do clinics. And I was so thrilled that I had the chance to visit Occupy Medical and see what a great, I mean, amazing job that you're doing, Sue, with people in Eugene. So that was, that was really such a treat for me to be able to be there. It was really a pleasure to have you there. And you, you didn't just come by for the tour, you came in to help too. Yes. That's what I, I love clinical herbalism. I love working with people. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think you and I have had this conversation before, and this is going to be the crux of our conversation here. But one of the struggles that I have with um, getting herbalists, there's so many people that want to help at Occupy Medical because it's such an inspiring group of folks, is that many of the herbalists just don't have real training for working with patients or as you call it, clients in some fields, in this, the kind of clinical setting that we have. And I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's why we started to talk about this, because it's been something that I think a lot of us who've been teaching a while and practicing a while, and uh, you know, some of us are with the AHG, and this has been a really sticky little subject because there's always this batting around of licensure and or not. Mm. And how do we become more able to be understood uh, by medical professionals, those of us that are practicing professionally, and how do we keep it real and keep it diverse and keep it accessible and not be regulated by the state? And so we're kind of treading in this, this territory where a lot of people have a lot of feelings about this. And it's been incredibly hard, I think, for herbalists to pick through these, these things and, and figure out how to practice in an accessible and authentic way that, that really speaks to them and their clients without having to enter the medical system. So it's, it's really one of those things that I go back and forth about. And part of that is, you know, when you have a you start to have a regular clinic. Uh, what I've found, and you can tell me about y'all's experience with this, is that uh, a lot of the medical professionals that I work with, they are happy to work with me when they've developed a relationship with me and they understand that I, I know what scope of practice means and that I don't act outside of my scope and I understand red flags. But how do we know in a in this world of herbalism with the various herb schools popping up left and right and lots of clinical programs, what, what is being taught to people and how do we know what students are coming out with, even if they're taught things, how can we, how, how do we know that who's coming in have the skill sets that we need them to have when working with multiple clients in different settings? So that's, it's just back to that age old, question that I think the AHG, the American Herbalist Guild, has been struggling with for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the um, pieces that I see, or at least I, I myself have kind of struggled with in the past was, well, if we have licensure for offer, offered to herbalist, does that make it that other people can't practice herbalism? And uh, clearly the answer is no. You can practice whatever you want. People in their house, they practice first aid, you know, and that's, th there oh, are, see, I, 
agree, actually. That people don't practice first aid in their home? No, that about licensure, I'm actually completely against licensure. Okay. Which is great. This is a great conversation. I'm excited I'm actually, I have to admit, I'm really shocked because I thought I was going to be the only one in the conversation who was not up with licensure. I really, I don't like licensure. I don't feel that our field is ready for it at this point. Hmm. I feel like we need to do some serious rebuilding in our educational structures before we can start having governing bodies licensing because we don't have a solid, we have a few good schools, but we don't have enough solid, big schools I mean, we, we lost those a century ago, and we are still trying to rebuild that. And I think once we have that, then we can start talking about what does licensure look like or what doesn't it look like. But but, but you're not saying don't ever have licensure. You're just saying we're not ready for it. Yes, and I'm not sure. I'm I'm on the fence about the question of licensure over the long haul. There are things that licensure has done in the medical field that I think is extremely bad. Mm-hmm. But there's also some good things to it. So mm-hmm. I I feel like I don't have enough information at this point, in part because we don't have the educational structures to support any kind of licensure system. Mm-hmm. So I I see that the field is changing so rapidly, but I know I'm I'm on a in a really weird area. Mm-hmm. I'm one of the few herbalists in the United States that practices alongside doctors and nurses. Right. And the only way I can do that is because it's a free clinic. Yeah, yeah. And you're practicing under a doctor's license. Mm -hmm. That's not your own, obviously, but, Mm -hmm. you know. Yep. So we're we're pretty careful about that. But, yeah, I, I, I have looked into schools myself, and I had the good fortune to work a long time ago, I won't say how long ago, <laughs> with a wonderful herbalist slash doctor. Mm-hmm. And I always recommend that to other people. But the field of, I think the thing that trips a lot of folks up is the field of herbalism is huge and it's diverse. And the um, TCM practitioners, they've got their their act together. Yeah. You know, they have strong schooling educational system. Yep. And insurance uh, pays for acupuncture for people with uh, addiction issues, at least in our state they do. And there are practitioners and at OHSU that um, practice Ayurvedic and TCM, and they are covered. Yes, and they're within the scope of what they do. A TCM practitioner mm-hmm. does not have to administer acupuncture specifically only for many insurances. It's just Chinese medicine, and acupuncture is one piece of Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. So gua sha, which is a Massage technique is also covered, right? Chinese herbs are also covered. Yeah, you know those things because of because it's one tradition, and the person has studied and learned that one tradition. Herbalism, right now in our country, there are many traditions. Chinese herbs is one of the many right. traditions included in herbalism. But the reason why they are able to practice is because they they have had all of those years of licensure. You know, you don't just you don't just like walk in and say, I, "I'm going to do acupuncture on you" because I have a sewing kit. No, that's that would be disgraceful. Right, but their their practice was never interrupted. Yeah, it was I, never vilified and made illegal in any area in you know, within within China. I mean, it, it's just been practiced for thousands of years, and it's a it's hard to go under undercover for a while. I mean, the the um, 
in their history they they had struggles with the English and things things like that and then Mao Zedong there's just there's just yeah. a huge history of that troubles troubles are a mini when it comes to culture right. but uh i i'm trying to look at those those schools as places that we can learn from ourselves like how is it that um both ayurvedic and tcm have their own structure that is so guided that people are getting their basics that go in and when they graduate they're ready they are truly ready to mm-hmm. to take care of folks and Western herbalism, as uh, Nicole has so wisely pointed out, we just don't have that. We have a lot yeah. of schools. Some of them are more reputable than others. But you know, how do you how do you how do you get financial aid to go to these schools? I well, and I have a little bit of a different viewpoint. Maybe I could just throw yeah. out there. Um, so. I, I've had the pleasure to meet Diane Miller of the, and she works on the East Coast as a lawyer for the, um, I think it's the National Health Freedom mm-hmm. Coalition. And I think the big argument for me against licensure is that in my experience of, I've had a license as a massage therapist at time at, for a time, and um, I'm not practicing anymore, but uh I don't feel like licenses make people any better uh, practitioners necessarily. I don't know. I know a license is meant to protect the general public from um, people doing things that may hurt them in some way a lot of times. So what Diane Miller has said, she has formed this uh, special place for on the East Coast that she has created a little legal loophole for herbalists where because they don't do anything like they don't use needles they don't you know practice medicine as long as they're acting within their scope there's not really a reason that they would need a license and so they she has some safe safe harbor states that now uh have created this alternative place for herbalists to practice and I believe it's maybe Maine or Vermont or something. I'd have to look more into it. But I don't really see in my profession, because, because massage therapists were licensed, that it made them better massage therapists. It actually, when they got licensed in my state, I was there before they were licensed. And when they got licensed, suddenly the cost of massage school tripled because the state suddenly wanted their cut. And then the, what you got taught was based on what the state decided was important to learn, not what the, you know, not what was necessarily important to massage therapy. Yes. Um, and then on top of that, when midwives got licensed in my state, they immediately got kicked out of hospitals by doctors so that they didn't get, they weren't, uh, were no longer a, uh, something to worry about. So I don't know if necessarily licensing herbalists is the way to go, but I do think that we need to come up, if we don't figure it out as as a profession, as people who are trying to make a living and pay their bills as herbalists, if we don't figure out, then what's going to happen to us as clinical herbalists is the same thing that happened with our product making. Good manufacturing practices came in and basically completely changed the face of herbal medicine making. And that's not to say 
that herbalists don't still make herbal medicine out of, you know, out of the realm of good manufacturing practices. But at a certain point, if you're going to make a living off your products now, you have to take a look at good manufacturing practices or else you're going to get shut down potentially by the FDA. And it's to me, if we don't get our stuff together as herbalists sooner or later with all these herb clinics sprouting up and all these people practicing, we're going to attract the attention of somebody who may try to regulate us. And before we know it, we might not have the choice of how that happens. Yes, that's exactly the same fears that I've had regarding licensure. Um, I'm, I've been feeling concerned that if we start moving in the direction of licensure, suddenly it's going to become some kind of government body or, or other organization that starts deciding which herbalism is okay to practice and which isn't. And then we find that alternative approaches are no longer honored or respected. So you learn Cherokee native medicine from your elders. Well, you can't practice that. You have to learn this other type, which is what we've decided is the licensed version. Do you know what I mean? Well, I mm-hmm. do, but I, that's not what, that's not the, the thing that I'm looking at with licensure. We have people that, like I was saying before, people do first aid all the time. They just do it. That's what happens. You know, if you, if you, if you're out in the country and you get hurt, you, you, the people around you are the ones that are taking care of you. And sometimes even doing things like stitches or what have you, that's, that's how it goes. And herbalists are just always going to be on, on that piece just with the, the pleasure of licensure is that of course on my selfish end, like now I could actually have people that know what they're talking about, come in to the clinic and start ground one, like just go. Yeah. But with certification from a good educational system, you can have the same thing without a government or a disinterested third party who doesn't necessarily know or care what the field. But there's a problem with that. The problem is because there's no financial aid for folks, there is a very slim margin of the population that can take those herb classes. So for the most- When you start licensing, you're going to end up in the same problem. You just get financial aid for it. You know, if Until it's if there's have financial aid and, and then if you can't if you're a school who can't afford to go through the accreditation process, then you're not going to be able to do that. And so that takes us into a different level of yeah. what does it mean to practice? Because I practice from learning from several different traditional healers. I've also been I've also studied with other people who are not considered um, necessarily mainstream medical types. That, that look at things from the Western medical model. So I, I've learned from many different types of folks, including uh, nurse herbalists and different types of Western herbalists that, that do practice within the medical model. And they're different things. And I, I highly, I'm highly, sus- I feel like it, I, I have a lot of like just worries that, that the types of approach like my herbalism when I look at a holistic constitutional intake and I'm looking at from from excess and deficiency or the six tissue states that if I make a recommendation based on some other type of model how how am I going to be able to justify that in a system that only understands western allopathic symptomatic conditions. They don't really look at, and even first aid, Sue, I will say, I even, it's not even licensure that I'm worried about because to me, licensure doesn't tell me 
whether somebody, and you said, you know, people will do it at home anyway with, because we always as herbalists are doing first aid, but I've seen a lot of herbalists who do first aid, not really understand. Like if somebody, for example, if somebody comes in saying, I have not, I'm nauseous and they say, Oh, let me give you some ginger. Well, I saw this happen at a clinic. I was at somebody was going to give somebody ginger and I go, wait, have you asked them if they're on meds? Mm -hmm. Have you asked them if there's something else here? So having a fundamental approach to being in a clinic to me has more, you need to know what to ask before you even administer herbal first aid if you're going to be in a clinic. That is exactly why I am pro, pro having the option of licensure. I'm not saying everyone needs to be licensed, but I would like to have an option. I, I mm -hmm. my, myself would love to get licensed. I would like to work with other licensed people. There's such a need out there, you know, and of course, because I work with poor, the the reality is that most of the people that get herbal medicine and they're able to sit through an hour consult are people that have a lot more money and the vulnerable populations that I work with, they, they need help too. So mm -hmm. I would love to have that option. It doesn't, it's not a, a Trump card saying, I hate that word now, but <laughs> <laughs> you said the T word. I'm sorry, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. But it's not that kind of thing where it negates everyone else. I just want to have that option as well. And the, all of the, the things that I've looked at that offer some kind of accreditation, honestly, that I, I wasn't very impressed with their agenda. I feel like I, I kind of felt like it was, I would be ripped off if I took the classes. And that's yeah, the opposite of what I want. <laughs> Too, because the thing is, is that when you when you when you put licensure in there, unfortunately, I really do think a lot of things would be cut out because you said like Chinese medicine, for example, the one of the things that that happened when Chinese medicine went mainstream. So one of the things that happened that from my understanding of Chinese medicine, when it main, went mainstream and um, it, it, it the communists, when they took over. Uh, wanted to have something that they could integrate in with Western medicine. And so they took all the spirit out of Chinese medicine. So if you go to some acupuncture schools now, they don't even teach five element theory. They just teach point-based acupuncture on based on what's going to be able to be put into a, into a little insurance, you know, bubble of like where you're going to get what done so a lot of stuff doesn't fit. So I, and with Ayurveda, Ayurveda is not licensed. And even though they go through all this training, they don't have any more of an easier time than any herbalist does going to herb schools and Western herbalism, getting a job because they're practicing, even if you feel like they've gotten more clinical training, which they do, if they go to certain Ayurvedic schools, just like depending on the, the Western herb schools. But Ayurvedic herbalism is very rich with spiritual and traditional uh, practices all through it from many different lineages. And that is, has, you can ask so many acupuncturists and Chinese medicine practitioners, there, there's a lot that has been taken out and lost in Chinese medicine due to it integrating into the medical system. But it's still, that stuff is still there. Like that's the thing about Ayurvedic medicine, which is like a perfect example is people that take Ayurvedic medicine, there's a process that you go through and we don't have it. My, my own training is patchwork. 
here, a little bit there, a little bit. And then actually treating patients that come into the clinic and talking to those folks, I had to learn all over again. I had to mm-hmm. totally, a lot of the herbs that I learned and how to use them, they weren't even accurate. It oh, wasn't yeah, helpful. That's... You know, mm-hmm. it's, it pretended that we were all sitting in the woods and none of us had any medication that we were continuing to take. And that's just not the case. So that's why I want some kind of option. I'm asking for an option, please. Can we have something where herbalists are taught how to take blood pressure, how he does that? I'm really glad for that. Uh, What does it mean if somebody has a certain type of an SSRI, for example? What does that mean? Right. You know, just basic anatomy, but we don't, we don't have it and we need it. Well, I think some schools do have it. And I think that that it is happening, but it's not agreed upon when somebody starts up a school. I think one of the things that's really interesting, like the American Herbalist Guild, I became a registered herbalist with them, which says I've been, you know, they agree that I've gone through 1500 hours of peer reviewed training and that I can be called a registered herbalist. I did that for my students. So they knew what the process was like. It doesn't help me as a clinical practitioner, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, does it make me feel like I know more? Not necessarily. But as a school, they can, anyone can purchase a school membership through the American Herbal Skill and put their school up there. And they're not, as far as I know, there's no process of who gets put up as a school anywhere or who's been evaluated by peers or colleagues as to what their training programs are. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's really was, was a little, you know, what made me want to call you about this and talk about it is I had somebody want to apprentice with me up in the Pacific Northwest. And I said, well, I don't really have a program for clinical herbalism up there right now, but I would, I would tell you my advice is to go and study with somebody who actually worked with clients before they started a clinical program. And she said to me, her quote was, I'm having a hard time finding that. Yep. That schools that I'm looking at seem to have started their clinical programs because they wanted to start practicing Mm -hmm. and something to that nature. Now, this is just one person's quote, but it, it really made me wonder, you know, should, you know, clinic just means you're working in a clinic Mm -hmm. and anyone can say they're a clinical herbalist. Anyone can say they're a community herbalist. Not anyone can say they're registered, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're any better or worse. Right. Um, But I do think that whether it's education, training, or or practice, we have to we have to agree with amongst ourselves what that means. To me, licensure would be relinquishing this to another body that I don't necessarily feel comfortable doing that with. But let's let let's talk about the part about how you visualize uh, proper training to become a clinical herbalist? What would that look like? Oh, yeah. Well, I've been, you know, I've, that's been something I've been really questioning in, in my school for a long time because I didn't start a clinical program till about almost eight or nine years. Uh, I was just teaching community herbalism. And then one of my mentors, Margie Flint, who wrote The Practicing Herbalist, she said, why aren't you teaching what you do as a clinician? And I said, well, I just don't feel like I know enough. And what she told me is that she hears that way too much with especially women practitioners. 
and that there's a lot of women practicing, but not a lot of women teaching how they practice. So what I had found is that, uh, you know, I've been, I went to Paul Bergner, Margie Flint, Matt Wood, Will Morris, all these people that were my mentors that I'd studied with, worked with, and now they're my friends. And I sat down and I asked them, what, what, do, what does a good clinical program look like? And that's how I built my clinical program. And what most people I feel like need is, is working with clients and watching mentors uh, see clients so they can yes. see what a good intake looks like as well as critical thinking skills. Yeah. So to yes. me, good program has a lot. Like we have a nurse herbalist that comes in and teaches an entire section on just critical thinking skills. So, because that's what, you know, nurses are pretty much doing all the time is breaking down what's going on. And so she was teaching, you know, if you're going to be working in a clinic, you have to be able to, um, to decide what you're looking at and where you need to go. And that takes critical thinking skills and asking questions and asking the right questions. So I think a good clinical program would bring in people from, in me, and that's for me. And it's also a personal thing because it's what school you go to. What are you trying to get out of your school? So disjointed. Um, so to me, you'd have to really decide what you wanted to, what kind of practitioner you want to be mm-hmm. and what, and so for you, Sue, you were saying you need people who know how to do, how to make a good assessment in a first aid si- setting that, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's great. Need. That's exactly what I want. <laughs> right. So for me, as you know, there's going to be different needs that I would want in in my clinic because I'm seeing people for a lot of constitutional long term chronic issues as well as first aid. So it's it's going to be what do you want? What kind of practitioner do you want to be for me to say what kind of program should you take? Because some people are going to want to work mostly with traditional healing. And maybe their lineage is traditional healing and they're not going to want any sort of practice practitionership or clinical training that that necessarily Western the Western mind would want. So I want to value that that I don't have an answer of what the best training is. But to me, um, you know, to be a master of anything, what I've been taught is that it takes 10,000 hours. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, you know, that just to give people perspective, you can't go to a. And, and that's not to scare anybody, but it's to say that, you know, you're not a master herbalist. You're not, you're not going to be any kind of, um, any kind of expert on anything unless you've done it a lot and over and over till it's like eating and sleeping. And you should be able to do a, to me, a, a lot of herbal intakes. When I was studying, um, Zen Shiatsu, I was, I was made to do a certain number and, and also, massage, I was made to do a certain number of intakes, practicing them over and over and over as a student. And so to me, you don't just go to a clinical herb school and learn, here's pulse, here's tongue. You actually need to be practicing with clients and doing your own work with your community over and over and over so you can hone your skills and getting feedback mm-hmm. from your mentors on that. Yeah. So they call Grand rounds is one thing that they do in medical school that a lot of a lot of herb schools that are clinical programs will do where you have case study reviews with your your teacher and they go through what your you know what your cases were what to look out for what to do so those are the sorts of elements that to me you would look for in good clinical training but 
you'd really have to ask yourself. But I, I hear your frustration, Sue. And I, and I know I'm, I've been there because I, I've been in clinics where people were practicing and it was frustrating because I heard people saying and doing things that, that made me feel like if, if we don't get some accountability for this in our own community, we could end up, you know, getting cut off from doing it. Yeah. Cause somebody's yeah. going to get hurt. Somebody's going to get hurt badly and it's going to go to the press and then there we go. And it happens in the medical world, you know, people get hurt from prescription meds, but it is true that, you know, we're, um, when I go to my auto mechanic, there's, there's three guys that work there at the place that I'm at. And I always want this one particular guy. Cause he really knows how to, how to fix things properly. He's, he's about my age and he, he's not all about his ego. He's a good mechanic. And the other two fellows, they're fine. I bet they could totally fill a gas can that would never, I would never <laughs> ever think they couldn't. But they're not my mechanic, you know. They're not. They're not as good. They don't have the experience. They all have the same certification, but you know, there's the, there's this expertise and preference in there, and that will never change, no matter how many licenses we have out there. And that's not what we're trying to change. We just want to have something where the list of things that are that you just talked about could be broadly available. It shouldn't be such a rarity like that student that you were talking to was at, was was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's definitely something that uh, it it kind of does. It is of concern to me that we haven't come up with a strategy yet, yeah. and there's more and more schools popping up. And one of my friends, Karen Sanders, she says some she says some really wise things, mm-hmm. and something I say over and over um, that that she, she said was information is not knowledge. And what I find is that, you know, it's, there's only three ways that, or four ways that people could go with herbalism right now. You could be a farmer and probably make negative $15,000 a year. (laughs) You could pay people Um, for it. Yeah. (laughs) And, or you could be a product maker and now you have to sink like 30 grand into, if you want to become good manufacturing practice, you know, so you're already, uh, you're in the negative there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or you could, you could have a shop, right. Um, you could retail it and you're going to have to sell a lot more than herbs. If mm-hmm. you're going to pay as a shop Yep. Uh, and, or you, then there's, well, there's actually four things or there's clinic clinical herbalism where you can see clients. And then you have this issue where, well, you either have to take clients that have a lot of money yep. or to work under a doctor, which more and more people are finding on the East Coast, especially doctors that will work with them as, and they're the herbalist. My friend Mary Blue has one in Rhode Island she works with. And, or the last way is teaching. And what I see a lot of people doing is they start teaching because they're trying to make a living as an herbalist. And if, and if, especially if they know how to sell really well and they, can, they know how to market really well, it can be really hard to tell who to study with because you have these fancy websites or a big Instagram following or a YouTube channel or all these things. So marketing, just because you can market yourself well, doesn't make you a great teacher and herbalist. Mm -hmm. So what I've seen is that world of marketing people, there's a lot of people who, who market things now that I just don't know about the training that they're offering because 
And it's not, and I'm not at all trying to be judgmental of somebody starting a school at all. I'm questioning it. It's, it's just, what does it take for somebody to start training these days? Because, and I started training what I knew. And to me, you should be teaching from experience, not information that you looked up or that you think that would be interesting to talk about. Like to me, I go to a school because I want to learn what the teacher knows and not what the teacher has, has looked at. Right. uh, Yeah. We we can all pick up books and read them. That's easy. Right. (laughs) Or we have your, we now have our little Oracle on our phone. We can ask anything and look up any plant. I've actually had students when I've talked about my experience with something in class, actually pick up a phone now and then go, well, I, I've heard blah, blah, blah. Right. And I'm like, what did you hear? Where? This was your phone. This is not, why are you here in the classroom if you're on your phone? So to me, you know, really understanding herbalism is, is a very deep and, and steady and slow process. And same with being a clinical practitioner. This is something you have to devote a lot of time and energy towards. And I don't know if we don't have, and I don't think, I don't know what to do because licensure, I don't know if that's the answer, but we have to have something because it isn't accessible the way, uh, the way we would all like it to be. If we can't, if people can't use insurance for to be covered, or if they can't get to us because we can't afford it because we're working three jobs to try to do something free for people. I mean, that's, that's the conundrum right now. She just described my life. Well, I think, (laughs) I mean, I think one of the problems we have is that health insurance governs all medical practice in America. And I think that's really, really bad. And that's part of where I start, when you start talking about licensure and herbalists accepting insurance, that's where I start to feel like, okay, so we're accepting the Goliath instead of saying, no, that's actually bad. Well, the yeah. naturopaths in Hawaii and in Oregon, they get paid through insurance and they are, uh, they're not learning as many herbs as they used to, but my naturopath is a, she's in her sixties mm-hmm. and we sit there and talk about herbs and she's a doctor and insurance pays her. She's yeah. my general practitioner. So it the, the impossible dream is actually not as impossible as we think. Well, but for me, if I wanted to go to school to become a naturopath so that I could actually make a living as an herbalist, mm-hmm. that's cost prohibitive, right. obviously. I mean, I, I think it's like $100,000 now and yeah. record mm-hmm. numbers. Of, we have less and less people signing up for naturopathic school. If you look, they, I think mm-hmm. the... One in Oregon, I think they went down by a significant percentage two years in a row yeah. of people signing up to to be naturopaths because it is so cost prohibitive. Yep. And which yep. is part of licensure that every time something gets licensed, it, you know, midwives have been this huge in our state in Texas to be able to skirt around some of the issues with licensure. So they would be people that I would want to look at if we because they were able to keep the the diversity and the spirit and everything in it mm-hmm. without yeah. state run it yeah we've got Except this we got that in Oregon too we've got licensed midwives and they are in um, like the midwife that I recently worked with she goes in and and helps with the C sections by being right there with the patient when they're getting a C section or you know she's she's all the things that herbalists. I see are, are in our modern society, 
you know, she knows what medications are. She knows what a blood pressure looks like. She's, she knows herbs. Oh, Lord, because she works with them. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's that, that I think is going to be the future. And we just have to prepare for it and figure out how to break down these class barriers so that everybody can get access to it instead of just the wealthy. Well, I think when you start looking at a lot of our herb schools like Nicole's and um, like Thomas's Lee Out East, and mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch yeah. of different ones, Howie's, those, uh, yeah, the, those, most of the ones that I have looked into and that I'm aware of personally do generally offer some form of work study or tuition breaks for people who are struggling with income. And they usually, it's not just giving them, giving the student just a scholarship. A lot of times there is a work study involved or there's you know participation in a research or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but they find ways so that the student is receiving the education, but is also giving back. So it's an, a good energy exchange. Mm-hmm. And that those schools are turning, making it not cost prohibitive for some of the lower income folks who truly want to do this. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they're keeping their own boats afloat, too, by charging a realistic amount. The amount it costs to go to an herb school is considerably less than what it costs to go to acupuncture school, especially if all you want is to learn Chinese herbs, but you need to you need to learn acupuncture and everything else so that you can accept insurance. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Chinese herbalism or Chinese herb school, acupuncture school is really, really expensive to go to. Yeah, it is. All these schools are expensive to go to. Mm -hmm. That's got to change. Well, and I I think that it's, it's, you know, I think this boils down to really, I I really like that you brought up insurance and being part of the medical world. I, I mean, as an herbalist, I would prefer to fight uh, the medical system to find all, you know, join with with lobbyists and other people in, in that are working to find alternatives to the medical system we have, because I don't really want to join the medical system. Yeah. Uh, and I don't I have no desire to work like some of my friends that work in the medical system have. I and even as community acupuncturists, they're having to put in ridiculous amounts of hours to do to get their bills paid. And so I think we're kind of in this weird place where we, we need to scrap the current medical system because it's too expensive and doesn't work mm-hmm. and, in the U.S. And that's what's not accessible is that we're putting all our faith in, in, the, in a system that's broken. Right, and, yeah. and, fit into it we need to show that there's another way right well it's health care for all that's the motto we all work on here and we're totally in agreement about that how we get there that's going to be tricky it's honoring diversity of needs honoring diversity of backgrounds honoring the diversity of supplies that we currently have skill knowledge everything figuring that out means that we need to continue to have more and more options for people and when we offer those options to be responsible with them. Yeah, absolutely. And also that we can agree to disagree. I think that's the, the beauty in having the diversity now is that we, you know, some people might be listening to this afterwards and say, I I totally disagree. And I totally feel this way. And I love the fact that we could have a good conversation about different perspectives and not fight about it or 
call each other out or say, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. we need to get back to being able to discuss it in a way like that, adults. Yeah. <laughs> well, like intelligent people. Oh, so I mean, we'll honestly, be similar about, to intelligent it's, people. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about intelligent discussion, mm-hmm. you know, critical Intelli- thinking, intelligent discourse. Yep. And, and it's true, having that experience in clinic, I mean, I, I tell students all the time, it, you know, you can, a lot of people will, will correct me with some new data that's come out on a plant or correct me with this and that. I'm, and I'm like, that's all great. All your data is great. All your information is great. But let's see what happens when you get into the clinic. Have you actually seen what, because what I've found is that herbs and people are very, a very different scenario than herbs written about with scientific research that has to do with, you know, you never know who's doing the research, what they're, what they're trying to prove with their research and all these other things that, that can come in. So to me, uh, you know, the clinic is, is such a interesting and, and really a place that you can't ever quantify with, with, with data because with herbs, polypharmacy and have an intelligence and, they're going to act the way they want to act with somebody and isn't going to necessarily go by what you read in your book or your teacher taught you. Mm-hmm. And you have to be ready for that, um, even if it's not what you want it to be yeah. in clinic. <laughs> yeah. Just like yeah. life. Yeah, well, I mean, you sure. guys have all had the experience where somebody says, like you said, I feel nauseous. And, and you do ask them the right questions and you may realize that ginger is not the right plant. And then for reasons unknown, it seems like it turns out that Yarrow's the right one. And that's certainly not something anyone ever wrote in a book that right. <laughs> helped with nausea. But it turns out for whatever the reason is, that's the one that worked with that person in that instance, in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it was right. the right herb. And you don't know until you're there. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. That's why experience is so important to have hand in hand with education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. And then I guess it goes back to it's really hard for herb students to get that experience because there's so few places for them to do that. And yes. yet what I see the double standard is, is that when there is a place for them to go, that they, they, there's a lot of times I've heard that they don't think they should pay. And yeah. to me, you're, you've got there has to be a way to make it affordable. Like I've seen people show up in clinic and be like, why should I? have to, you know, I'm just going to come here and learn. And it's like, well, that's, I paid to learn. Right. That's part of the fallout of the health insurance industry. I think. Mm -hmm. Thanks. You know, people show up at at your door and they want your, they want, they want you to help them get better, but they don't want to pay you more than 15 bucks because that's what a copay would be. Mm -hmm. That's how much they're valuing (laughs) their input into their own health. And we've created several generations of this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like it just started yesterday. Nope. We've created a culture where we don't think we're supposed to pay in any way or invest ourselves in any way in being healthy. And magically, the practitioners who are going to help us get out of pain and, and disease yeah. are apparently going to survive on vapors or air, a single grain of rice. I've also seen another part. <laughs> where I know we need to end this conversation because we're running out of time, but um, another part of that, the glorying of the, of the healer of I'm working with people for a couple of years, they get through their problem then they come back and they're practically deifying me. Mm-hmm. And that is like, you, you think I'm the one that healed you? 
Yeah. No, is that the way? Because yeah. that's the way traditional yes. medicine is. Is there is this this glorified Messiah of medicine, and yeah. they and then you get you're touched by the healing hands of blah blah blah. And now you have to be their their fanboy or something. Yeah. No, it's all about a relationship. Yes. It's all about communication. It's all about just doing something. Anyone can and and should be doing the kind of things that we do in order to heal people, but whatever. <laughs> Get in line, folks. Step up. That's what I say. Well, we really appreciate having you in and and what a what a headed head what is it? A heady 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 topic. Heady. Heady topic. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. It's fabulous to have you here. And uh, how do people get a hold of you? Oops, hold on. NicoleTelkish.com, N-I-C-O-L-E-T-E-L-K-E-S.com. And people can just get a hold of me there about different things. I'll be teaching all over, you know, the West Coast this year in Texas. So um, I'll be around and seeing clients too nice and come into occupy medical to see our place i would love to i loved it there it was so amazing everybody that has not been to occupy medical you should definitely make a stop there and send money to support bless your heart a little bit of donation (laughs) would be helpful right (laughs) yeah well thanks again nicole for doing Mm -hmm. what you do and we hope we'll be talking to you again soon Definitely. And I'll be able to tell you more about some other things that are coming up. (laughs) So until then, put an herb on it. (laughs) The statements made about herbs and products on this podcast have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All information provided on this podcast or any affiliated websites is for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for advice from your physician or other healthcare professional. You should not use the information on this podcast and its affiliated websites for a diagnosis or treatment of any health problem. Always consult with a healthcare professional before starting any new vitamins, supplements, diet, or exercise program before taking any medication or if you have or suspect you might have a health problem. Any testimonials, questions, or case studies are based on individual results and do not constitute a guarantee that you will achieve the same results.